like you, if you just kind of understand that when you have any ounce of power in whatever domain you are responsible for how that how that comes off and it's your job to figure out to do that in whatever way you see fit right and conversely to that so the flip side of that coin is like is what i've always thought of it as is that app everybody knows that absolute power corrupts absolutely yes. but incremental power corrupts exponentially Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. And in today's episode, we have returning guests, Joe Joukowsky and Nick Bugle. This episode was absolutely fantastic. As always, Joe is back home for the weekend, and he, you know, hits us with all of his psychology meanderings that he normally does. And in this podcast, he's starting to dive deeper into the psychology of meaning. And meaning really means just the mental framework that you use to scaffold the way you look at the world, yourself, and everything else around it. And we then kind of meander through like a personal levels of meaning, and then we use history examples, looking into morals and ethics and power as dynamics to kind of reframe what meaning is to people and how the that framework is the bedrock at which you use to operate within the world. And in some ways, how that has disastrous effects, because we really go into Operation Paperclip and Hitler and how he used the world and how his framework spiraled out of control. And then it caused an entire, you know, world war out of that. So with this conversation, we get really in the nitty gritty with all of this stuff. And there's a lot of takeaways. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joe Joukowsky and Nick Bugle. Our more our breakfast podcast where we just ate breakfast and we pass the savings on to you. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> what are they saving? There's they don't have to eat breakfast now. We ate it for them. <laughs> we saved them time. <laughs> That's what we did. Man, this is really morning, Joe. For real. Coffee's <laughs> kicking in quick. I don't even know where I am. <laughs> are you having a moment? Yeah. <laughs> it's a long moment. It's been going literally all morning. <laughs> it's been going for the last, I don't know, 26 years. Yeah, she just say it. Like your moment doesn't, it just continues mm-hmm. vaguely. Yeah. Are we actually recording right now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I yes. recorded your breakfast intro for fun. <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. You started going off fun. I was like, hey, this is, this is worth recording. All right. <laughs> is it? No, <laughs> but I'll, I could cut it out. No, 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 no. That's fine. <laughs> what were we talking about? We were, um, oh, we were talking about death. Yeah, we were talking about animals. Yeah. This is Nick over there playing video games, talking about... Currently killing digital people. Yeah. Yeah, the worst kind of people. <laughs> I know I know that might be bigoted, but I'm, I'm serious about how much I hate those digital people. Oh. <laughs> That's actually the name of a, a group, so... Is it really? Yeah. Hate those digital Uh-oh. people? Not No. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a band? No, I think that's like a... I was going to say, it sounds like a punk band. I think that's like a recruitment company. Oh. Yeah. Well, not them. I didn't mean that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. God. We were playing um, Red Dead, and we were talking about animals. We were talking about how I saw a photo of a deer that had gotten its head stuck in a fence, and... The only thing left of the deer was just its head and its spine. And the rest of it was eaten. It was like, oh, 
animals go out like that. Like, that happens. It's got wrecked. And people have unfortunate ends that are just as horrendous. People, it took me a long time to process that kind of stuff, but when I was in the Marine Corps, I really understood it, or came to understand it. That there are people out there who had all the hopes and expectations as you do, just as complex, just as totally thinking that they're going to be fine, that the whole world is going to go their way, or at least that things they have their you know five year plan and they expect they have every reason to believe that their five year plan is going to work out just fine, and then one moment they're walking down the street and then a car hits them and it's all over, and they have to, it's just no warning. You don't have any chance to process it. You don't have that like you don't even there are people who are literally don't even have the time or there were people who literally didn't even have the time to process the fact that they were going to die there wasn't that like 10 minutes of oh god no uh, why lord i wish i would have done this or would have done this it's just walking and then dark and that's it and you're done yeah and it's like oh shit and that took me a while to come to terms with because like oh fuck like the story could just end Lights out. Yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, and then we were, what were we talking about? The simulation and all that? Yeah. Running a simulation. Um, I kind of pulled that into a little bit of a sidetrack with the idea that in almost all religions, maybe not quite a simulation, but we exist, our lives that we are currently living exist in a blip of time. And... Um, Living is essentially a test drive to see how you operate with life and if you be, will be welcomed into nirvana or the kingdom of heaven or whatever your religion offers. Almost all religions, to the best of my knowledge, pretty much have the end goal of an eternal life or rejoining some type of force mm -hmm. or something and how you live your life will dictate. And um, just talking about how if that is a thing, if eternal life is the end goal or what comes afterwards, how this life is a blip. 50 to 100 years or however old one may live would be a blip on the radar compared to how long eternal life is. Mm -hmm. And how hard it is to perceive something outside of that because that's what we have. And this still, like, you know, living for 50 years is a very long time. And we almost, I think a lot of people, like, there's people on their deathbeds that are like, you know what, I'm ready to go. I'm good. I'm, I've lived for 90 years, seen a lot of my friends pass away. A lot of my loved ones are gone. I'm kind of alone and I'm ready to pass. I'm ready yeah. to go into the big sleep or join the kingdom of heaven yeah. or whatever. And I don't know. I, I just think it's really interesting to think outside of life itself and what might be out there and how big that is compared to how small this is like and we like pity people who die and i think it's just because we view other people as fixtures in our lives that like it's so sad this person's gone now i'll never be able to see them and that's so yeah. sad for them too because they don't get to participate but what if it's just this idea that like um, this is like a weird little thing but like there's a fortress theme park and everyone you know is in it, and we're all having fun, and then one day someone just gets plucked out of the theme park, and they're no longer in this fortress, and you don't know. And you're like, wow, I never get to see that person again, I don't know what happened, I loved them, this and that. And they are now outside of the fortress in this massive, complex world with many more things to offer. And 
something that you don't know about because you're only in tune yeah. with this idea of the fortress theme park and you're having right. fun and it's great and you're loving it and you get to still have your other friends around and there's distraction there's this and that and you pity your friend that's gone you miss your friend that's gone but one day you'll join them again and that might be for an even longer period of time like let's say you're only in this theme park for five minutes 50 years is five minutes in that scenario mm-hmm. and then you get to spend decades outside with the people you loved and you like think back occasionally like oh that theme park was fun but this is way cooler and like I don't know how often is any of our mindset wrapped up in just that fortress theme park like that specific limitation because that's all we have to process stuff through it's the only reference you have yeah I've heard stuff like this in two different ways it's funny because I've heard preachers talk about heaven like that right or it's like, here's your life, and you cling to it, and you think it's all this great, but you have no frame of reference. Like, heaven is supposed to be this thing that's, upon experiencing it, is just totally... Different. Yeah, it's a whole other animal. And then I've heard, um, or I've, I've kind of seen this with people, like, that they don't... And this is in, in the sexual realm, where they live their life without being having any sexual experience... And they were like, okay, life is fine. And then once ha- upon having had sex, then they go, oh, oh, now I get it. Oh, look what I, like, now I understand. Yeah, it, like, right. removes the blinders, you know? The, yeah. Like, you, it's so easy for you to, like, demonize something or say, oh, I don't need that yeah. until after you've experienced said thing, whatever that is. And then it's like, oh, this is what it really is like. Yeah. Or this is, like, a whole new way of looking at the world. And it's almost like, and I mean, in that sense, it can be a positive, right? So that's that's like a positive thing. You you you've been awoken to, mm-hmm. you've awakened to to this world of sexual experience that is enjoyable, that you can go out and you can experience it and whatever. Then there's like the negative elements where, to tie it back to talking about death, where it's like when you realize that, when you actually get it. And it's not just like something that happens to people in movies mm-hmm. or even something that just happens. You might have even had people in your childhood or something that you've lost and still not understood it really for yourself. Yeah. But upon realizing it for yourself, the scales have fallen from your eyes. And mm-hmm. This is why I like the story of – I actually like the story of Eden like in the Bible in the beginning because everybody, everybody has a fall. At some point. I agree. Where they leave their little Eden, and then they go, oh, fuck. Like, everybody, that story is true, in that at some point in your life, everybody gets to the point where they stop being naive. They stop being that happy child anymore. That that little, like, mom and dad are perfect, the world is perfect, mm-hmm. and you go around and play on the swings, you know? Yeah. That that ends, and you fall out of your little Eden, and you come into the real world. And you're like, oh, wait, the world is a way more one shittier (laughs) than you could have ever imagined it to be Mm -hmm. and two you can do just as shitty things as someone else yeah that's another thing too is like when you realize that you're not that you're not just inherently a good person yeah i think i think that that's something that happens in the suburbs at least from my experience a lot because when you're a kid it's so easy to be good it's so easy to be good here in this bubble where it really is a bubble such a bubble and Mm. Everybody, like, the whole environment facilitates you acting politely and kindly, and for the most part, people do, and that just makes it all the more easy. So you just, you think that you're a good person because you haven't done anything bad, but that's only because you've never really had the opportunity to do To it. do bad, right? You haven't been tempted. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? 
you're not in a world where you could do something terrible and totally get away with it. Mm -hmm. And it, it would even be for your benefit and you could totally justify it as being beneficial for your culture or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that dude is just an asshole. So why not screw him over? Right. And it would help me out and help my friends out and whatever. So you never really had the opportunity. But then every so often you do, people do this all the time. They'll do something and I'm reading all the meaning literature right now for my thesis. Mm -hmm. And that basically you have a global, what's called global meaning. That's kind of your baseline understanding of goals, beliefs. Yeah, I was going to say, so it's like a, like a baseline humanity of what meaning is at like the root of it. It's the way you frame the world. Yeah. It's the basic way you frame the world. And then you go and you do something bad, terrible, that you didn't think you could do because you thought you were a good person because your environment was facilitating it the whole time. But then you're in an environment where you can get away with it or whatever. And then you do something that you didn't know you could do, that you never believed you could do, and totally violates the idea of your self-concept. And trauma happens in part. What they found is that Trauma and post-traumatic stress and these things are actually a violation of your global meaning. So you have trauma when something occurred that totally rocked your framework. It broke the structure. Like you don't know how to conceptualize it because you had this belief about the world and now something has happened that totally contradicts that belief. And Weird. then you're thrown right into total chaos. Mm -hmm. So that can happen. That falling from Eden, that... That breaking that structure, leaving your little your little bubble, occurs in trauma all the time and just in life. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, is that why you, when you have parents that are too far on either side of the spectrum, you know, the... What spectrum? Like the hyper-authoritarian or the hyper-loose, oh, you yeah. know, parents that don't watch their kids at all and they just let them have free range. Yeah. Why on both of those extremes... Both of those people, I'm generalizing hard, and I don't know this actual data on this, but they're more likely to have some sort of issues later on. Like, if, like my example that it comes to mind is the like Catholic raised. You know, they go to the Catholic schools, they go to Catholic, you know, everything up until mm -hmm. the point of college, and then once they get to college, they're like freedom, and then yep. they go fucking bananas, yep. and then they, you know, they find drugs and they find partying and they find all that shit, and, and then they, yeah, they, they totally spiral yeah and yeah then they just can't handle it because that taste of freedom and that taste of oh this is what everyone else got to enjoy now i gotta make up for it <laughs> well they're both you, you mentioned those two sides of the extreme and it looks to me that they kind of horseshoe around to the same problem that's just exactly which is basically that they're being raised in a way that isn't in correspondence with the actual nature of reality yeah like you either have a super authoritarian parent who's always controlling and doing everything, mm -hmm. right? So that you, in some sense, never have to actually think for yourself. You just have to think. What would they do? Just, right. Or what do they want me to do? Right, exactly. <laughs> you just do what you're told to do. Yeah. But that doesn't fly in the real world. Like, you can't just go around doing what everybody else tells you to do. I mean, for one, there's too many people, and all those different people have different ideas, and some of those ideas contradict each other. So if you're trying to just do what everybody tells you to do, you're going to – you're not – you can't do it because then you're going to be told to – to walk and not walk at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't work. So you go out into the world and you try to act that out and you just can't do it. Or when you finally have that freedom, like you leave that Catholic school, mm -hmm. then you have the problem where no one is telling you what to do. So you don't know what to do. So you just do everything. And then you go 
forget it. You can't just do it. Because then you just burn out and then you right. just spiral into. And the doing of everything is the same problem I see on the other side where if you have the free, you're just given like, you know, that I'm the cool parent, haha, you can do whatever you want, like kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And then you go out in the world and you're just doing everything that you want. Well, you can't just do everything that you want. <laughs> there are things that will, if you do it, that will actually kill you. Yeah. <laughs> like if you do cocaine for 10 years, <laughs> that's going to have some serious fucking problems. <laughs> right. Or you just do too much, then it just kind of spirals into something where it's like, oh, well, then you're going to run out of money or you're going to run out of, you know, your own whatever it is. Yeah, like something suffers. Run. Something is going to suffer regardless, even if you can manage whatever it is. You run into other people that don't want to, don't want to put up your, with your shit. Yeah. Like, you live in a world that is a social world. So there are social expectations there, that there are people there that you have to work with. And that's real. That's part of the framework of reality is the social aspect. Mm-hmm. Like, there is reality. Within reality contains people. People are social. Reality is social. So you're stuck in it. So you can't just go off in the world pretending like people don't exist. And you can just do whatever you want. You can pretend like you don't have to, I don't have to listen to nobody. Eh, yeah. I can do whatever I want. But you can't. <laughs> there, are, you're, there are human obstacles, as in there are human beings that will be an obstacle. And then you have to in- interact with to get anywhere. You know, to, to, do, to be able to do anything you want to do, for most, for most of the world, requires you to interact with someone else who has the ability to open doors for you. Yeah. In whatever form that decides to take. Yeah. So it's like the best thing you can do for your kid legitimately is just be real. Yeah. Is be real. Be as close to what reality is. Now there's a problem there because even if you're trying to do that, you don't have a perfect view of reality. And you as a a parent are going to have your own baggage and maybe you think that the world is a cruel place and you're bitter. Mm -hmm. And now that bitterness is going to be put on your kid. And that bitterness could be misaligned with the nature of of reality. Maybe you're too bitter, right? Maybe you're too jaded. And now your kid is going to be growing up thinking that that's the way that the world works, but that's not aligned with the actual world. Yeah. So, I mean, that happens with everyone. Every single parent will do that. You can just look at how ideologies changed over the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I've spent a lot of time looking, reading, we kind of mentioned it yesterday with Operation Paperclip. And I know that gets into kind of conspiracy theory, mumbo-jumbo a little bit, but what, like... Like, looking at that book really kind of, it put in a lot of perspective of, like, science and then the science by any means necessary Yeah. that the Nazis went. Like, it, it's just so crazy to me that a country can kind of get this ideology infused in it and then they're able to just justify human experimentation. And I was just kind of like, holy fuck. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, it's not even that long ago. Yeah, and there's if you want to take a totally rationalist worldview, I don't see how that is an invalid endeavor. Obviously, it's sick and disgusting. There's but, a, it's a moral and ethical dilemma, right? From so, a from a science by any means necessary, like yes, we're trying to push the needle forward, and you know because of their own ideology, they were able to you know describe or not hand wave away, but it is that's how I want to say it because it's abhorrent and disgusting yeah have hand wave away the reasoning of like oh yeah they're not really people so we can yeah. do whatever we want to them and it and it's it's like an ends justify the means yes. sort of a thing it's like our entire goal is to and this is the problem with utopianism it's mm-hmm. in aligning yourself with it and saying that you're you're going to usher in the utopia mm-hmm. right so the perfect paradise right 
might be worth any sacrifice. Yeah. So then you can justify any horrendous behavior, yeah. any human experimentation or murdering of millions mm-hmm. that will get you there, which is what the Soviet Union did. They just yeah, said, they did like, we're only another million away from the utopia. <laughs> and then they kill a million, oh and then they're God. another million away, and another million away. Like, it just... Like, after seeing the research that was hidden away and how they would use it in their books, they would call people, or they would use the word pig for their experimental subject. Jesus. They were not pigs that were actually the test subject. But they knew, so that's the interesting part, though, is whoever was writing those documents knew that what they were doing had an ethical question mark attached to it. And so they were kind of in foresight enough to not say human. Yeah. And so that kind of leaves a little weird thing to me. But then the other part of it, so where the Operation Paperclip comes in, is that the United States government and the Soviets and basically any other major power was all trying to do this and probably did do this to some degree, just more documented, I guess, for the United States, to bring in Nazi scientists regardless of their moral, ethical, and ideological beliefs and put them into positions of power to create science and push it forward. Yeah, I mean, really to fight each other in the Cold War. Yeah, right? it was all Cold War driven yeah. between the Russians and the United States because the United States kind of used it as like, oh yeah, if we don't do this, the Soviets are going to want to take them and they're going to do the rocket programs, so we need to beat them to it. And the scary thing is that that makes a lot of sense, and I don't know what kind of question you, I don't, you know, how do you really get around that? Because that's that's true. It is. I mean, it's a hundred percent true. Had our nuclear weapons aimed at each other, and having the ability to shoot those rockets was a means of protection. Yeah, you know, it's it's a deterrent, mm-hmm. and which is what the whole space race was about. Yeah, was literally just two nations showing off what they can do, mm-hmm. so that they can say, "We can get to the moon." But imagine if we can take our rockets to the moon, we can definitely take a nuke to you. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what it is. It's all just kind of. This is what we can do. That means we can easily make this go wherever the hell we wanted. Yeah. When, when, like, I understand, like, Werner von Braun and his, you know, genius in the rocketry world and things like that and how okay. he basically pushed the needle forward to be able to get us to where we are today with that type of technology and all that. What scares me more, in a sense, is that, and this is one of the things they brought up in the book, was by bringing in... Nazi scientists, because that's what they were. They just white whitewashed their background so that they didn't seem as horrible as they were. From the highest levels of that government into the United States, and then giving them high level positions allowed the ideology of that they brought into their thinking and their scientific doctrine to suffuse the American ecosystem or the higher higher levels of government and science. NASA, JPL, different co- massive companies that we would still recognize today that they got to be heads of departments of. Right, so their way of thinking got, it permeated. Yeah, it just becomes a permeation of everything. And that's what scares me more. I'm skeptical about that because one, I mean, this is obviously, this should go without saying, but obviously what I'm about to say is not a defense of Nazis. No, obviously not. (laughs) Welcome to today's culture. You have a grandmother that you told survived Auschwitz. I don't don't know if it's Auschwitz. But a concentration camp. Anyway. um, So... The Nazis weren't a monolith, and just because you were German didn't mean you bought the ideology. No. And just because you were a German scientist during the Nazi era era doesn't mean that you were doing human experimentation. No. Or that you were some horrendous person. And the reason, one highlight, means of highlighting this is in 
Victor Frankel's um, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, yeah, that was good. Yeah. No, um, you're right. I have so many books with meaning in the title, they start to get crossed. <laughs> um, anyway, so in that book, he talks about how in the last camp that he was at, when they got, um, when they got, oh, what do you call it? Liberated by the Americans. Mm-hmm. Or the Allies. I think it's the Swiss or something. I don't know. Um, so the warden of that camp was taken by a few handful of the prisoners and hidden. The prisoners of that camp hid the warden and refused to give him up to the allies until the allies said that he would go free, basically, yeah. that he'd be safe. And it's like, wait, hold on. Why would the victims of a concentration camp protect the warden of that camp? And it was because the guy would go and he would work with those prisoners and he would go and buy medicine out in town and bring it in the camp to give mm-hmm. to the prisoners. So he was like trying to protect them in what way he could. Yeah. And it was like, okay, so here's a guy in some horrendous here's a guy that you he is the Nazi concentration camp warden. And you think that that would be the exact kind of person that you could point the finger at and be like, ha, proof that you're a bad person. Easy. Right. Easy. That one's easy as pie. But turns out it's not. It's not easy. It's yeah. That people really, really complicated. Yeah. And that you can't just, even if you can't just point at the group of Nazis and say they're all bad, then what makes you think you can point at any other group ever and say they're all bad? No, yeah. Like, you just can't do it. It's too complicated. hmm So, I'm skeptical about the idea that inherently bringing Nazi scientists into our rocket program meant that we imported Nazism. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like in what, in what percentage of the Germans really knew what was going on? Yeah. I mean, they did a really good job in the book describing why these certain people, like she highlighted, I would say probably 12 or so head scientists in different departments or different areas of uh, the United States government. They were creating different scientific whatever, um, highlighting what their scientific stuff was and then their ideological stuff that kind of got uncovered or didn't go uncovered or how they whitewashed their backgrounds yeah. as things changed. So it's, it's more of just like that these guys were already power, fixture, power figures within their own hierarchy in the Nazi regime, mm-hmm. and then they got transplanted into the United States, and then over time, from being war prisoners and you know just scientists doing work in the United States government... As things got more lax and they showed their prowess in science, they got shifted up the ladder and put right. into positions of power again. Yeah, I mean... Which is ironic. That's just a competence thing, too. Yeah, right. You know, if you're a fucking genius-level scientist, it's not surprising that every time you yeah. go and do science that you You're going to go figure out how to do something good. Right, that you're going to raise... You're going to climb up that ladder. Like, yeah. You've just got it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like it's like the fastest runner or something in the world. Yeah, it's, just it's, because <laughs> I transplant you to the. It's not a surprise that when you run in, you know, Kenya. Germany or, or Kenya or whatever. That, that's that, what I was thinking. Is like if you, you have a, like someone who, from Kenya and right. they're just running all day every day. Then you bring them here and they're like, oh wait, these guys are really fucking good. It's like, oh yeah, they crush it in competition. <laughs> like, that's not surprising. Yeah. So it shouldn't be surprising that you take a genius level scientist and they come over here and they continue to crush it. <laughs> that's not, that's yeah. Not shocking. They, they, the crazy thing too, like. When I was reading some of the science stuff of it, like, and this is from the 50s, you know, late 40s, 50s era, and they were finding the different research facilities as Germany was crumbling mm-hmm. and just how they had it set up. They were doing 
like the first versions of the um, the wind tunnel experiments to see the aerodynamics of planes mm-hmm. in the 50s. And they found this stuff, like research facilities buried behind things, like in barns, like, you know, three layers deep, like you wouldn't yeah. even know it was there, full on like crazy research stuff. And they're like, holy crap. Like they were way ahead of their time in just experimentation of how to push the needle, you know, and I keep using that term because it's, it's kind of how I view things. It's like these incremental like steps that just kind of, they were just ahead of the curve yeah. and then they find it and they're like, Oh wow. Like they could have beat us. Like if they, if they didn't start crumbling at that point, it's like they would have just blown right. us out of the water from some sort of technological advancement. And then outside of that, it, it shows why there's so much myth around the technology that the Germans had, you know, like, yeah. you know, how advanced were they really? Or like, what were they really working on and how they were obsessed with occultism and certain, you know, there's artifacts a, and stuff like it that. It reminds me of, um, it's why those rumors seem to get started to me. Yeah. Remember <laughs> that? Did, what was the name of that Netflix uh, death guns. Oh, uh, love, death, and robots. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that TV show. There's series. one episode in there that's like the Soviets or something, and they're like doing some occult thing. Yeah, and, yeah. They like summon demons or something. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of that. <laughs> Total aside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, it it reminds me of that, and it's like some of these dilemma things. It's almost like an episode of Black Mirror, kind of, because it's like, oh shit. Like, yeah. like if you had that idea, it's like you have these guys that on one end. They have questionable moral and ethical backgrounds. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they're some of the best scientists in the world. Yeah, and then on the <laughs> other other hand, it's like you're competing with a totalitarian murder. Yeah, superpower. Superpower. And it's who is literally at that exact time like going to do the same thing you're trying to is do. doing is killing more people than the Nazis and you're fighting them in a cold war. And it's like, fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it literally, it looks very much like a any enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of a situation. You know, so they just... Ex- oh, wow. They kind of just say... That's a really good what? way of putting it. The Nazis are bad, but the Nazis are defeated, so let's take what we can get out of this to take on a, an even arguably worse threat now. For the greater good. Right. Now, that's super gray. You know, that's not It is easy, super gray. <laughs> that is not an easy call to make, and I do not envy the people that made the call. Oh, my gosh. But, uh, even if it was a bad call, I understand it. I mean, I get it too. At this point, I mean, I've I kind of went into the the rocketry world just as an engineer, being interested in how Elon Musk even figured out to fucking make rockets when he has zero rocketry yeah. experience. And I mean, the the holy grail of rocket science, and they still call it the holy grail of rocket science, is written by Warner von Braun. If you want to start anywhere in rocket design, you start with his book. So, <laughs> it's like, shit. <laughs> so, I mean, so, that's kind of, that's human history, right? It's just a bunch of people making things, and some of those people aren't good people. Yeah. But at the same time, this is why technology, even if somebody, even if the person that made a technology was horrible, that doesn't make the technology bad. Correct. So, you just kind of, kind of. Just gotta do it. You gotta do yeah, it another ways. another weird like weird quirk of history on the same lens is um, the the creator of Zyklon or sorry, let me not let me preface it. So the creator of ammonium nitrate, ammonium nitrate is used for bomb making. World War II ends and we have massive factories that are making this ammonium nitrate. We're like fuck, we don't really need bombs anymore. Okay. <laughs> what are we gonna do with this? So the United States government's like, oh wait, ammonium nitrate's great for fertilizer. So 
these factories get turned into subsidies manufacturing for corn production in the United States. Hmm. Rewind a little bit. The person who created ammonium nitrate fertilizer or artificial fertilizer is the same guy who is also credited for creating Zyklon B, the poison gas used in the In the chambers. Camps. Yes. And so this guy is kind of written out of history books because he's the creator of the gas, but he's also given a Nobel Peace Prize for basically quadrupling some really crazy factor of something, food production, because of this fertilizer yeah, that he created. That <laughs> gas, that gas was originally used for, like, pesticide stuff. Yeah. It was, like, to get rid of rats. And it had a smell to it, and so the Zyklon B was just removing the smell from it. Yeah. Which they did without his knowing. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's interesting, too, because that's an insight into... This is something Peterson highlights, Jordan Peterson. Oh, really? Was that fact that it was basically a breaking down of the psychology of Hitler, and mm. that you can tell that it's it's very revealing of how he thought of the, the non-persons mm. that he used a pesticide to get rid of them. Oh. Right. Because... I didn't even, like... It's it just kind of connected right there. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's not they. There's this idea that Hitler was afraid of Jewish people, and that's not true. Hitler was disgusted by Jewish people. Mm-hmm. It's it, they're different emotional mechanisms, and disgust is something that you use for like rats, yeah. and use for diseases and whatever. Right? It's things that you're like, ugh, get it vermin, away from me. right? Yeah, right. like you're you're cleansing the world, right? right. Which is what he thought he was doing. Like, he literally, the first thing he did when he came into power was go into all the factories, and they all had to clean themselves up. Like, actually clean it. Like, he turned everything into super efficient. Like, everything needed to be, have a place in its place, super clean, neat freak type. And then he was like, okay, so we're going to get rid of all the vermin. So they use Zyklon A, and they gas all the mice gas out all of there, the factories and, and clean there and they clean all the factories and they get the whole country in order. And then the next thing he does is he goes in the insane asylums. We're going to clean those up, too. Kills everybody in there. Weird. Cleans those up. You know, yeah. scare quotes. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then it just expands and expands and expands. And soon he's cleaning up all the the people he just doesn't like. And now he Dude. thinks he's going to clean, he's going to purify the world. So it's like, woof. You want to talk about an emotional mechanism, like, just spiraling out of control. Yeah, I was going to say, like... It- if he would have just left it as like, let's, you know, turn us into a clean mm-hmm. manufacturing machine right. and left it at that, he could have been like that, a way fine. different leader right. than the was, way we view him today. Right. If he hadn't taken it so far. And he was he was liked in the beginning when uh, Hitler was first in power and he was doing all those things. He was like on the cover of like Home and Garden or some shit. No way. Yeah. Like... <laughs> He was really well respected across Europe, and like people were like, "Oh, this is great! He's doing good things for Germany. He's fixing them up after World War One." He just didn't stop. Yeah, he just got from each level of success. He was like, "Let's go bigger! Let's bigger, go bigger, bigger, more, <laughs> more!" And he's probably driven by just disgust. I know he had some really bad experiences in World War One. Yeah, in um, Dan Carlin's like Blueprint Armageddon or something, he kind of mentioned some of Hitler's diaries that he had when he was serving in World War One and how he like was in the trenches and some notes he wrote and it was just some of those things kind of like set him off mm-hmm. that like planted seeds for his own yeah i mean he for what he would do later on to, and it's not surprising that he thought so highly of himself at some in some sense because he 
stepped away for a moment from all of his friends. And then I forget why, like take a piss or something, you know, mm -hmm. like all his friends are huddling around in World War One. Then he goes and leaves. And then artillery comes in, kills every single one of them. Oh, my God. Except for him. <laughs> so he's thinking now, if that happens to you, you're thinking like you're either thinking that the world is unfair and totally chaotic and everything mm -hmm. sucks, or you think there is an order to the world. You meant to be and I out of that. I meant to have survived. And yeah. then here comes the grandiosity and the resentment because you just lost everyone. You're angry. You're pissed off. And you go and you and apply. And it's almost like, why apply, am I still here? Right. And you go and apply. And you think, oh, my destiny, I know what it is. It's to be an artist. And I go and apply to this big art school three times and get rejected every single time. And then you now you're extra pissed off. And you still think that you're destined for greatness. And then off to the races then he manifests his own greatness <laughs> yeah. in whatever yeah. way that that's yeah, so in a very dangerous way and all that resentment and hatred and and disgust just spirals what scares me is how many people you pass on a day-to-day -day basis like the person on the bus stop who makes a racist comment to you about someone around because you're white and they think they agree with you. I don't know if you guys yeah. have ever experienced that. Um, I have, yeah. Where they look at you and say something like about a different race. Yeah. Offhanded and you're just like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially living in uh, Bloomington Normal. I saw a lot of that. Really? Yeah. I mean, the college town Is that a more of a like, rich college town? Uh, it's kind of in middle of nowhere. Yeah. I've never been there. Wesleyan was a little higher income. Okay. But around both the campuses, it was... A pretty, it was like little haven areas, you know, there wasn't like a lot, it was mm -hmm. still a college campus. Right. Sketchy things happen. <laughs> um, but, you know, once you got outside of that, it was kind of like a uh, middle of nowhere type deal. A lot yeah. of cornfields and stuff, and there was some staunch racism. Like, there was a gallery that I like to go to, and there were, there was an artist that was selling really well, and then one day the artist came in to like give a little talk and all of a sudden she stopped selling and Whoa. it was white people buying her art and once they found out that she was black they were like i don't want this wow and Jesus. i remember one day i was like walking i i lived alone one summer so i would just walk around a lot and i was walking in the downtown area and there was this woman at like a bus stop waiting for a bus and this car drives by and a black gentleman's driving and there's a white woman in the front seat and she like just yells something through the window that's down and I was like, okay, cool. Kept walking. And then I get closer to the old lady sitting on the bench. And she says, I don't know how a young white woman got got herself mixed up with a black man, but that's not my problem, is it? And I was just like really annoyed that she <laughs> thought I would inherently agree with her. Like yeah. I was like, you know, immediately went through that whole like, you're not worth talking to because you're set in your ways and you're this old. And I feel bad almost demeaning someone like that. Like I don't see the potential in you to help you learn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With whatever last horrible breath you have on this earth for processing information that way, like a bigoted idiot. Um, but so like little stuff like that, you, those people are around. Like I remember one guy that I went to, we all went to high school with. Um, he was like the lovable, not even the lovable loser. Everybody really liked him. They thought he was nice. I kind of saw right through his crap and he was a huge bully and I experienced some of his stuff like that he would say to other people or behind their backs mm -hmm. and how he thought people were just expendable to him. And then we had a class together in community college and I hope he kind of hears this. I'm not going to say his name, but he is just a trash human. Um, and so we had a class together and we were like, hey, you want to go get lunch together one day? And I was like, yeah, why not? You were friends of my friends. Why not? We'll go hang out. And we're on this like kind of long ride and he starts to talk to me about how he's just like racist. 
And he's okay with that. And I thought it was like a joke at first. And I was like, this is kind of off-color human, man. And that he just like kept going into it. And he just saying like, you know, like there's... He, I, I'm not going to repeat anything, but it was like tangibly disgusting racist stuff that he was proud to believe and almost wanted to like spread. And I kind of batted it off because I was like, you're driving and this is weird and I don't know what to do right now. Look, I'm trapped in the situation. Yeah. <laughs> like, I have no frame of reference yeah. on how to behave in this situation. Yeah, it's... And it, this isn't like the drunk uncle either. This is, I, it was worse. <laughs> it was way worse. <laughs> this was sober. And I was like trying to like maybe change topic just to make myself more comfortable in that scenario, not yeah. with him. Um, and he didn't want to get off that topic. He was proud to talk about why he hated the black race and everything. And I was like, Jesus, okay. Wow. So then we get back to the community college and he's like, we, a black person drives by with music kind of loud through their car. Not even as loud as I drive with my music. And he had to make some racist comment stuff. And then that's when I stopped talking to him. Jesus. So, I mean, <laughs> that's just, it's, it's tangible. It's out there. It's very easily accessible, even in the bubble of the suburbs and stuff, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what would happen if those people had the power that Hitler did? Right. Like, are these people just, can you just scoff them off the woman at the bus station? What if she had the power and potential to do what she wanted, you know? Are these people that we should just brush off? Now, I'm not saying we should do anything to them, but it's just like it's a lot scarier to think. And I think, you know, at the same time, too, my perception of that is subjective to my own experience as well. Like what I think might be right, what I would do with power might not be right either. Right. Um, but it just brings me back to like why we should be kept in check and stuff and like little things like that. But it's terrifying to think like how many people think of stuff like that and they, you in know, overly they simplistic know it's wrong. terms. They write human, they write pig instead of human and whatever right they might in their life. Um, they cover up the fact that they're a racist, bigoted bullet, bully and stuff to the people around them so they can be that lovable loser and stuff. How many people are out there like that and what would they do if they were offered power and how many people do we not know think like that until their power is accessible and they start to make the changes they that's want? Why, and and that's why I don't trust – I don't trust any – any – it's something like a – I don't want to say institution because that's almost too general. Any – power structure in some sense structure in which you can gain power because power in and of itself isn't a bad thing power is just a mode of force right it's a means to get things done but so you can it's what you do with it that's so dangerous mm -hmm. and the problem is that when you give people the power to do things it's very easy to find out what they've really wanted to do all along like, I saw this in the Marine Corps all the time. I saw dudes... I was going to say, that's that's a really good and example. And it became a trope. It became a trope. Like, people just knew that this kind of stuff happened, and it was almost like, oh, this shit again. Like, of course, he's one of fucking them, which is like a Lance Corporal who's been a Lance Corporal for a couple years, you know, hmm. maybe more, a few years. And they've been getting shit on the whole time in the Marine Corps. And then, finally, they get Corporal, which is a non... Or is a, an NCO, a non-commissioned officer mm -hmm. so you you're you're in charge of stuff now like you have the authority people underneath you yeah you basically. people have to fucking listen to you like mm -hmm. by law actually i mean assuming it's a lawful order right but you see i would see people and it became an, almost a joke because everybody knew this kind of stuff would happen they were totally fine when they were lance corporal chill laid back and the moment that they had the power they were assholes, mm -hmm. and they just went after their old friends. They would treat their old friends that they were just having a beer with two weeks ago like shit. Whoa. See, 
Because they, they have it. Because they've been wanting to behave. They've been wanting to fucking express that resentment, that shitty behavior all the time. But they just didn't have the fucking means. And now when they have the means, now the door is open. Mm-hmm. Now they just get to do it. It's yeah. not that they were – they just – that being a corporal made them a bad person. They were already a bad person just waiting to act it. They already had this – It moment, was already there. Right. It was all, that thing was already there. And you don't even – you can I can see it sometimes in people. Like I can tell it's not if you're perceptive, you can tell the people that should not be given a fucking ounce of power. And it's like, and people will even tell you stuff. People will even tell you when they're bad people because mm-hmm. they because they, they think about it themselves and who they are as a person. They'll let it slip. Like I've heard there's like the silly trope that I always hear is like that is like a rule for me that I've I've met women that'll be like, Haha, I'm crazy, and I go, I'm gonna take your fucking word for it. I'm like, I'm, there's no way in hell that I'm going to just let that one slide by. Because they, they act, people will act like they're joking, but they'll let mm-hmm. slip what they really know about themselves. And I've heard, well, what podcast was it? Oh, I was listening to Sam Harris talk to, get interviewed by some woman from Vox. And oh. she, it was almost debate-like. Mm-hmm. They, like, she was trying, she's constantly trying to, like, pick at him. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, she was kind of doing it in not a very good way like you can do that as a journalist and like be effective but it's kind of just like nitpicky almost anyway um there's at one point in the interview sam harris says okay i need you to turn up the empathy dial a little bit for this one like because they're discussing oh. some problems they had between each other like over email yeah and he's like i'm trying to get you to understand what it looks like from my perspective so turn up the empathy dial a little i really like that and, sentence <laughs> and she and she goes she said something along the lines of like haha um, I'm stone cold anyway. Like, ha, ah, like I, I don't, you know, I'm oh. unfeeling kind of a thing. And I was like, oh, you are I'm like, you actually are like, that's what this is. Like she has next to zero empathy. Yeah. Empathy. Right. Like she, in the whole interview, she kind of had this like, oh, I don't care. I don't care. Kind of attitude, you know, like almost, almost nonchalant security, like overt. Sounds like she was afraid that she might be susceptible to empathy. And she was like, no, nah, I'm going to get ahead of that. I don't yeah. need to empathize with anybody. Yeah, and it's like and yeah, she, it's exactly and she like subverting down it. Down on it, like, and I was like, "Oh, you really just let slip there the fact that you act." And she said something about she's like a bad person or something. It was I can't, I wish I can remember the quote, but it was like, "You know that you're a terrible person. You know it." I'm like, "Wow, look at that!" I'm like Jesus. To be fair, like, so I think one of the most objective things that a lot of people there's it's a flip side and a balance to everything, right? Mm-hmm. It's one thing when someone, like, gets completely fed up. Like, if you had plans with someone, and then they had to cancel, and you were like, no, you made these plans with me, and you're going to follow through. You owe me that. And not being able to recognize that no one owes anyone anything, and mm-hmm. life happens. Mm-hmm. But then you take the no one owes anyone anything a little too far. And you yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's um, Aristotle talked about virtues being a mean, that you have these two extremes. You have the, I don't care about anything. And I care too much about everything. And that what a virtue is, is the middle ground. It's the yeah. place in between there that you get to balance. You walk on that line. And mm-hmm. that's what defines a virtue. And I think that that's right. Because you take anything, you take even the most pure, you take empathy, which is like the pure hearted thing. And you take that too far and it becomes violent. Because you, or just totally thoughtless and dangerous. Because you're just like, you're just, I empathize with this person so much. It doesn't even matter if they're totally wrong. If they're totally off base, or they murdered someone, you're like, I just, I know oh, why I they care did about it. Them so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that you're that that thinking at 
thinking capacity and the person gets sacrificed on the altar of empathy and you are totally Ooh, that's you a good are quote. you and people will call themselves good for empathizing in and of itself but it you can take it too far i would argue too though in that scenario that hyper concentrated empathy is bad for you know like let's say again you empathize with a murderer and you're like i'm gonna help them cover it up because you care about them mm-hmm. that means that someone else might get murdered and there's still a murderer on the right. streets right but I think, too, a lot of people that are less hyper-concentrated and have a much broader form of empathy are much more susceptible to being misled and kind of things like that mm-hmm. in a lot of ways or having staunch beliefs that aren't exactly credible in some ways. But on top of that, the worst part is just exhausting oneself, of being over-empathetic all the time to mm-hmm. everything that you'll ever experience. It's, it's awful. Sometimes, what, yeah, totally going with that, sometimes what people when they say that they're an empath is really them just being very agreeable and that they say that oh i just do this like i just care about everyone and that's why like you know why i do everything for everybody and all that and they think that they're a good person for that but sometimes they just all that they're doing is being weak and they're just getting walked all over and then they tell themselves that it's okay that they're getting screwed over all the time and then until they get i mean not everybody but a lot of people eventually build up this bitter Oh yeah, about it. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. they, and they get bitter as fuck. They they end up just saying like everybody takes advantage of me, and the world is terrible. And people oh my are god, terrible. You see that a lot with like relationship profiles. You do see. Oh my god, <laughs> I, I yeah. People tell you way too much stuff on social media. <laughs> anyway, twenty nineteen is the year of sharing that. I've I've seen this one post. Which um, one? Have a good heart and walked all over something equivocal to that in multiple different forms. And so yeah. many people are sharing it. And some people that I know well, some people I don't know well. And it's just tough, especially when you know them and, like, there's a little bit of that, I feel owed something for doing something. Someone who never asked for help and you go out of your way to be like, yes, and then you feel good because you helped them. But now you also feel that they owe you something. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I've, that's what I've seen amongst the people I know a little bit better. And what I'll, what I'll see, too, is people will go, will say, you know what, like, it's almost like they're just, I don't know exactly how to describe it. It's like they say, I'm good, and that's why I get walked all over. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. or, like, it's it's like they just believe themselves to be just good. Mm-hmm. And it's somehow that they're being so agreeable and always going along with things and letting people step on them is okay. And that the reason that, that that is happening is because they're such a decent person. When in reality, it's really that you're just too docile. So they frame it in this way that makes them look better to themselves. I actually did that when I was in high school. I was dating someone. Then we broke up and we got back in touch later. And I went and did my crazy way of handling the breakup and everything. And we were like, she was like, you know, talking to me about like, wow, these are the things I've heard after we're done. And this is kind of strange. And I was like, basically, I wasn't like, I got broken up with because I was a good guy. But in my head, even though I was not a good guy, um, in my head, I was like, okay, I got broken up with as a good guy. So I'm going to stop being that person because mm-hmm. I don't want to be the one that got dumped. I want to like go yeah. be something else or whatever. And her first thing was like, you didn't get dumped because you were like a bad, a good guy. Like, that's not why you got broken up with. And it was like this whole thing. And it was like yeah. a really weird moment for me that I was like, yeah, you're right. But then in my perception, it was just like... I got dumped as a good dude, so I'm going to go be a bad dude. Yeah. But really, I hadn't made oh. much of a transition at all. It was just, it was there. 
I was just, you know. Wow, that's... I've definitely seen that. That's really interesting. Who are doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing or trying to be a good person, and then they get screwed, and then they blame their being screwed on the goodness itself. So they decide... They don't just rebel against, like, the person that they used to be. They rebel against the good as is. Just period. Right, so that they're like, if being a good person got me this then I'm not going to be a good person. Because what's the so use? It's like the stereotypical guy who gets broken up with, heads are heartbroken, and then they go sex, drugs, rock and roll. Yeah, you <laughs> The spiraling... Right. <laughs> <laughs> Bugle pointed to himself right. for context. You know. Uh, <laughs> when, in, when in Rome, 117, huh? <laughs> 117. It feels like your world shatters, right? Yeah, that's that's a really yeah. I was you know I was seventeen. I was like, man, I get to be bitter. There's yeah. a really interesting conversation between Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson on Peterson's podcast, not Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm-hmm. It's part one of it was last week, I believe. So part two is probably out now. I got to download. Came it. Out today. Did yeah. it come out today? Yeah. Cool. I'll have to listen to that one because I thought it was really interesting because basically Peterson gets to interview Rogan and talk about you know. Rogan's life a little bit more and one of the things they talked about was like how relationships where men and women don't have like when you're 17 you get broken up with your first girlfriend it's like you don't know how to put yourself back together because <laughs> you've never had to deal with that before and then because right. I think he was talking about his own kids where he's like oh shit I know that eventually that's going to happen to them and they kind of just have to figure it out and to like think about it like they have a significant other and you're like well I know this isn't going to work but yeah. we just got to see how it plays out <laughs> I mean, that's why it's... it's and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning with the meaning stuff. Yeah. Being the parent, uh, you know. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly that's where I was going to go with it, too, is that you what you really... You can't be a, a life coach for your children. Like, there really is... You're not going to be there when that breakup happens to, like, walk them through it, right? But at the same time, what you can do is just create... A framework for them of how a relationship ought to be mm-hmm. so that they understand that when that breakup happens that that's okay that's normal that um this doesn't mean relationships themselves the concept of a relationship is a bad idea yeah you know because they might think oh i got really hurt when this relationship ended why would i bother trying to get into any relationships if that's the case yeah, but if you have a secure attachment, if you understand how relationships ought to be, then you'll understand it's not the relationship that's bad. Because I've had a good one with my parents, for example. I know that I can go back and have another one. You know, I can do this mm-hmm. again. Just because I had one bad one doesn't mean that they're all bad. It just means that this one was bad. Yeah, and that's why it's really important that you getting real practical with the psychology here. Always, when you're, if you're a mother, always be very attentive to the infant. So when it cries, you're right there. And you're showing the child that they have someone to return to in mm-hmm. times of stress. If you're a dad, encouraging them to go out and explore so that they hmm. can go and challenge themselves. So it's like safe, safe haven <clears throat> to come return to if necessary, but a desire to go out and explore the world. What happens when the dad is the one... In the role that seeing someone that the child sees they can return to and the mother is the one telling someone to go explore. So that's tough in part. So the research that I read said that with 
that the maternal relationship style predicts the quality of, of um, adult relationships, but the, it's the attachment style, basically, mm-hmm. between the mom and the infant. Yeah. And that's what predicts it. But the attachment style between the infant and the dad doesn't predict it. So it looks like there's some some pre-packaged structuring on how the infant looks at the mom and dad relationships and they're not equal like they don't do the same really yeah they don't do the same thing um so and you can't exactly explain to a child like (laughs) just because you know you can't like sit an infant down no i'm your dad but you can still trust me kind of like you trust your mom it's a fucking infant. Like, it just... <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It, it just, just knows mom and dad right. vaguely. Yeah. It just knows the characters, yeah. not it anything has like, else. Yep, it just has a real general concept of the both of both of them. It yeah. It uses those as different things. And you can... And that's not a societal problem. That's a... It's a biological thing. This is pre-programming, right? Right. It's just, <laughs> I think part of it might have to do with, like, breastfeeding and stuff like that oh that the child is breastfeeding and then looks at the mother as a source of like resources comfort and, and comfort yeah and i mean it's technically your first home and i'm using sense. quotes right because you were born from it right from your mother <laughs> right so and that stuff might actually be 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 formed in utero like you can mm-hmm. start to understand the mother as a comfort before it's even born yeah and that so, makes sense just kind of intuitive yeah. Thinking there. So there's that. And you can say, okay, well, we won't breastfeed so that that doesn't happen. But breastfeeding is actually very, very important for children, for infants, in part because of that attachment. The bonding. Right, the bonding between the mom and the infant. Like, that's super important. Um, that being said, you still, it, these aren't mutually exclusive. The father still can be an attachment figure. It's just not as strong of mm-hmm. a thing. It's not as strong of a force. Mm-hmm. So this is part of why single parenting isn't a good idea, is because you actually can't be all things for the child. Right. You actually need another. You need to. Need to. What do you call it? You need a dichotomy, is what you're saying. You need. In some ways. <laughs> not exactly. You need a distribution yeah. of labor. Right. That makes more sense. Like there's just a thousand different things you have to do for this child, and you just can't do it all. Yeah. So you need another person there yeah. to make up for the things that you can't do. Yeah. So if you can do that for the child, that will be good. That will help them in their relationships as an adult. And then, and that way you can be the life coach for them in an indirect sort of fashion. Yeah. Just kind of giving them the, the toolbox so yep. that once they are old enough, they can yep. figure it out. <laughs> right, exactly. You just hand, you, if they know how to use all the tools, then they'll be fine. Yeah. But you can't use the tools for them. It sounds like yeah the single parent thing i don't know how it would play out with parents and this is a very removed scenario but like mm-hmm. i got pulled over one time when i was like 13 for tp'ing and two <laughs> cops showed up and they were doing like good cop bad cop as much as you can to a kid who got caught for tp'ing right <laughs> it wasn't not illegal but you know you eventually got to stop a kid before he covers the entire house right um, but so the bad cop left and now good cop and me were just the ones there talking and now good cop has gone into playing good cop, bad cop himself. Oh, that's weird. And it's weird. like, you got a hell of an arm, kid. Also, you're a terrible child. And then, like, <laughs> my mom comes to pick me up and he's like, your son is the most respectful young man. And like this collection of like completely flip-flopping things. Yeah. And I was like, Sending is? mixed messages. Yeah. And I like could only imagine, that was like a quick little thing. And this was like really one of my first 
genuine exposures to the police. Um, I don't really have a lot outside of like having interactions with friends who are now police officers themselves. But like I could only imagine if that like played out in a parenting role yeah. of like, hey, I'm your friend, come hang out. Also, I'm gonna punish you yeah. and you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's really, really bad. <laughs> because those mixed signals make it more complicated to understand other people in the future. Because if you can't even if your first if what sets the president for that child is a person who is flippy floppy, who's all over the place, who gives you mixed messages, that you don't know how to rely on them, then when you become an adult, you won't know if or how to rely on a significant other. Like if you're trying to be in a relationship and your entire framework for understanding people is that they're totally unreliable, totally unpredictable, you're going to be an emotional mess every time mm-hmm. you're in a relationship because you're not going to know whether or not tomorrow their good, their loving you will continue. So, interesting. Don't yeah. be yeah. all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting because it seems like a lot of the stuff we've been talking about is kind of like everything's a little <clears throat> complicated. And when you get to the extremes, bad shit happens. And it's about finding the balance somewhere in that magical middle part mm-hmm. for just about any quality or virtue or whatever you call it. That's why putting yourself together is so important. <sighs> because if you're just trying yeah. to be a good parent, you're probably going to fuck up. But if you try to be a good person and try to get yourself in order then your ordered self will ripple out into the childhood of, yes. until you're into your child right so you'll actually be a good <clears throat> parent just as a byproduct of being a good person yeah the the one thing i really got a lot of value from was that mindset course that i took over from march to or from sorry from january to march and the basically the thing they can distill it down to is basically aligning your thoughts words and actions and it starts out with understanding what you stand for in your thoughts and then making sure that your words and actions align with all those layers so that you know who you are and what you stand for even before you say anything or do anything Mm -hmm. and then just rippling effect outwards so that anything you do in the world is in alignment with how you choose to be and i was like holy shit that makes a lot of sense and it's weird because once you start doing that and you start orienting your worldview around those things that you that matter and whatever the way you view the world or want to view the world mm-hmm. it's like you have to choose to be this person before you you know it's it's like an identity thing right so it's like instead of saying i wish i could be something you say i'm going to be this or you, you don't even say that you just say i'm doing this now mm-hmm. because it's over the long term over doing it months and years is when you become that person Right, it's like you're you make you have you make a habit out of certain behaviors. Yeah, you just keep doing it, and then it makes a habit, and that habit. I forget who said this. There's, I'm paraphrasing somebody here, but it was your daily behaviors become habits, and your habits become your character, and your character becomes your destiny. Yeah, cool. I really like that a lot, and it's kind of how I've kind of viewed a lot of things that I do or value. It's like I never like I used to tell myself sort with working out and be like, oh, I'm not that kind of person. Like, I'm just, it's just not in my cards. Yeah. I'm not going to be athletic. Never could be. Never will be. And at some point, I was like, I'm going to try and do this. You know, I threw my ego out. No more judgment on myself. And then it's like, oh, wow. Three years later, like, look at all the shit I've learned about working out. And now I can do things that I never thought was possible. And it's not the fact that I 
have some sort of athletic gift or whatever. It's just that, oh, I made a decision for myself that I'm going to just figure this out and just do it because I like doing it and it has a lot of positive benefits outside of the liking doing it. Right. That I'm just going to make the time for it. Just like a relationship. Like, if you want to make a relationship work, you just make the decision to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, you make the decision to put in effort. You can't That's decide. That's what I'm saying. That it, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, you can't it, just say, this will work. Yeah. No, it's, and then it's the, the other effort. Person, yeah. It's the finding the, well, well yeah. step one, finding a relation, mm-hmm. someone to have a relationship with. <laughs> yeah. But then it's the, the, the harder part is making sure that relationship stays yeah. positive. Yeah. You, there's, there's just work you have to put in. And it's like, I mean, there's some of this in epigenetics they're finding out. Like, it's not, you might not even have the gene to be athletic in some sense. I mean, mm-hmm. this is way simplifying it, but let's say you don't exactly have the gene to be athletic. Yeah. But if you put yourself into that athletic world and you keep practicing and keep doing it, what will actually happen is that, thanks to epigenetics and what we're learning now, is that that gene will actually turn on. Yeah. That you'll actually, there's these things, I think they're called histones. They're like a crystalline structure that forms around the DNA. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it stops it from being coded. But if you put yourself in a situation that is actually stressful in some sense enough that you need to be athletic, yeah. it will shake off the histones and now no that way. DNA will be exposed and then your body will code that DNA that and now you so have that cool. ability. That, like, if you take, and you can do this with pigs, if you take domesticated pigs mm-hmm. and you release them into the wild, in like six months they'll be a, a fucking boar. Like, yeah, be I mean, hairy, they're one of the crazier ones. And everything. Their body will code new DNA to yeah. make them able to survive. Yeah, so like you've seen, you've seen like what a pig looks like, right? The pink, fleshy, Dude. soft yeah. jelly thing. When you, a wild boar is like a battle tank. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I've seen them, yeah. They're crazy. They're fucking brutal, too. <laughs> yeah, they're pissed. They're angry and they like, they breed like rabbits legitimately. Yeah. Like, uh, they can have litters, like I think within six months of being fully developed. They're basically a problem in almost every state right now. Mm-hmm. Like everybody, that's why you can find videos and stuff of people in helicopters, which is fully automatic rifles. Just there's a video of forward. Ted Nugent doing it with an AR. Just <laughs> and they have to do it because there's crazy. so many of them, and they're fucking they they yeah. fuck people up. They fuck people up, and they just because they're tusks, they go for the rooted plants, and they just destroy fields. They're yeah. terrible. So you have to just keep killing them because they're just they're yeah. insane. I mean, but that the all this right. to illustrate the fact that. You're like that fucking boar too. You put yourself in the right situation, mm-hmm. and you'll turn into that battle tank. Yeah, I mean that—that's that, exactly what I was gonna say. So, like for those of you who are not versed in epigenetics, and this is gonna be the really even worse than Wikipedia definition of it. But basically, it's your your genetics can change depending on the environments or situations you put your body in. Yeah, but you have to put yourself in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can't half-ass it. Like it has to be stressful enough for you to. Is change. that is that what'll happen? Well, no, because what happens up in space is more mutation, right? Due to exposure, not like uh, like space when the astronauts is, come back. They I don't have know, different... and I don't know if we would actually have the genes for space. No, I don't think we would. You know what I mean? Because you actually yeah. have the genetics but in some sense. What I'm saying is they on. do come back. I think I believe with altered. I know altered features in some right, but I think also altered DNA. I'd have to talk. To I don't maybe. I, I don't know, know the DNA part, but I know physiology changes a lot because when your body's not. Yeah. exposed to the gravity, you know, the 9.8 meters per second that yeah. we're always feeling, or the 1G, I guess, is the better mm-hmm. thing. We're, we, your ligaments and bone density, all that starts changing and shifting, mm-hmm. and you basically your skeleton just starts to deteriorate. And it could just be, I don't know if this has to be necessarily genetic, but it could just be too, like, your body has a finite number of resources, and it is only going to use those resources on the shit that it needs to do it on. 
So if gravity isn't a problem for you, if you don't need to, if you don't need to make sure your bones are staying dense or whatever it is, then it's not going to waste the resources on it. Yeah. So that just happens in space, and that just that happens in general anyway. Yeah, I mean it kind of makes sense too. Like, if if you take this and go, you know, do zoom way out, say mm-hmm. like a thousand years from now, we got mm-hmm. people that live on space stations with low gravity. Say we don't ever figure out how to make artificial gravity effectively, you're going to have a different set, whole set of humans in mm-hmm. quotes that'll be adapted to low gravity environments, and their skeletons will probably look way different. You know, they you they probably wouldn't even be able to come on Earth. Yeah. Realistically, because they're bodies would be so unaccustomed to what one grav one earth gravity looks like that they wouldn't it would be probably painful for them because if i was gonna say but so like in the same right yeah like would would generations be able to adapt or what is human in their life be able to adapt to that it sounds like yes eventually yes earth gravity like if we let's say we needed to go to mars or some further distant planet to prolong the human race and multiple generations had to exist in a spaceship and Mm -hmm. procreate on the way there would multiple generations of lack, like bone density, lacking, yeah, you'd, you'd see something change, for yeah. Sure. But then, definitely. when they got to that planet again, would they be able to adapt to that gravity? Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. over time. It, it's just it would just be like we use technology in in place of <clears throat> biological evolution. Of course, it's a problem too because you could also imagine that you change a certain amount over those generations, yeah, and then you make it to that planet. And then, because it's already so fucking hard to establish any kind of colony, I mean, look at, like, Jamestown, right? They fucking ate each other. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, I mean, they got you, restarted three times or yeah, something. I don't know about that. Yeah, they, they literally had cannibalism. They're, they have a skeleton. Is this, like, a old-school story? Jamestown this is, like, Columbus. Like some Virginia, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not Columbus. Fir- it was, colonies. Yeah, yeah it was okay. one of the first colonies. Actually, I think it might have been the... No, Roanoke? That failed. Anyway, yeah. I don't remember. A lot so of the, like the first three colonies failed. Yeah, they just kept pumping people into Jamestown. They all kept dying. <laughs> but they literally, in multiple occasions, got to the point where they're eating each other. Like, it was cannibalism. They were all dying. So, if it's already that hard to establish a colony on Earth, imagine trying to establish that colony after your genetics have changed in a new fucking environment like Mars, right? Like, the chance that it might just be impossible. Yeah. Or not impossible, but real day. It's definitely a problem. <laughs> like a 1%... Chance yeah. of success. Yeah. I mean, it would probably have to be the same thing. Like, you would just have to... Get a have, certain number of people that yeah, want to go. You just have to have, like, here's a million people that want to go to Mars. Mm-hmm. Just keep sending them in waves of 100,000. Because by the time the next wave gets there, the first wave's going to be almost dead. But it's like, you just keep building off the tombs of the people before. Know. We said... We sent Matt Damon to Mars. That's true. (laughs) I mean, or either million people or one Matt Damon, (laughs) and get him to do poop potato experiments. We just need to clone Matt Damon. Oh, there you go, hundred thousand times. So perfect. The only thing that would start a war. The (laughs) naturally, the the engineer and me. We'd have a bunch of Matt Damons running around killing each other with poop potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just picturing poop potatoes thrown across Mars. No, I'm Matt Damon. I think Jimmy Kimmel would have a field day without that. So. <laughs> he would go over. Good. That'd be like a, that'd be like some kind of sick, twisted fantasy of him where he gets to go over there and just butcher Matt Damon. <laughs> just on top of a hill, like a body, just killing thousands of Matt Damons. This escalated so quickly. What was that? What was that? You were on today. What is that '80s movie? That the heavy metal. Is there an '80s movie about? Not about. <laughs> Not about that, but like it's like an old like I think it was I think it was the seventies or eighties like science fiction like oh like, like cars start to come to life. Metal. 
kind of a thing where I think it was called heavy metal where it's like women in like armor using like machine guns like laser machine guns and like just in the background it's like that but just a bunch of bad things it was beautiful <laughs> this is so bad it sounds like something I would this want this escalated so quickly heavy metal yeah that's definitely yeah. a thing well, I'll have to look it up and put it in the show notes this for people <laughs> so they can experience heavy metal for yeah, themselves yeah. This is for sure a Kuma's movie. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a Kuma's movie That's for sure. That's what this could be. We could literally make this. Just, just ma- a thousand, 100,000 Matt Damons and one Jimmy Kimmel with the we, heavy metal soundtrack. On we Mars. do have a video production specialist. So. Nick. <laughs> right now, he seems very much more into westerns. Back to, back to killing digital people. Yeah. We will be. Matt Damon. Oh my God. <laughs> That's full circle. That was full circle. What are the odds of that? It's uh, We're just at about hour ten minutes. Want to call it? Yeah, why not? That's a good way to end it. Yeah. I, yeah, go ahead. No, what are you, you going to say? Just, you got just something? go for the clean. I was curious about um, the uh, thing you mentioned with the Lance Corporals graduating and you could see the personality shift oh, like yeah, it was always yeah. there. So, for one thing, I think there is a little bit of like, you know, Stanford prison experiment ah, type yeah. thing amplified yeah. by self-justification there. But what about the fact that like, like, when I was younger, I was like, you know, I don't like police because it seems pretty lame that, like, in the moment, they're like, oh, I am the badge, you respect the badge, you respect me, I represent this force. But the second something goes wrong, it's like, oh, I'm just a person, I'm just a man that was in those shoes in a hyper-intense scenario, and this and that, and I was just acting as a human. And I was like, if you want to act like you are the badge, but then back down when you make mistakes, that felt really weird. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I mean, as I've gotten older and especially talking to some police and things like that here and there, a big thing is learning, like, there, like the show, like, New Girl has this whole thing about, like, the character Winston learning to get his cop voice. And you have to be the police. No one's going to take you seriously if you come up to someone's car and be like, hey, can I yeah. Can I see your license, please? <laughs> please? Right. Like, you have to be a representative. You have to embody that authority. Right. So that's that's meeting a stranger who already recognizes that you were wearing a badge with a gun in a car with flashing lights and sets up the scenario and says, this is someone that you will respect. And you still have to maintain a persona. Yeah. Right? Uh, to some right, I don't think that's, like, always necessary. But, um, and so... What about, you know, that guy, one of those guys, would have graduated in his position, and now these are people that he used to josh around with that were peers, mm-hmm. but now he needs your respect. Do you yeah. think he's kind of taken on that persona as That's, well? Not yeah, just there quite. is a lot of that happening too, right? That you actually have to be able to get your pre, your friends to do work they don't want to do, mm-hmm. and it kind mm. of forces you to be a prick sometimes. Yeah. And that's definitely part of it. Um it's walking the line that make it's why it ha- I think that's part of why it is so difficult to be a good leader. Like the hardest, they say that one of the hardest um, promotions is that promotion because now you're working with people who you were just chilling and causing problems with and like shooting the shit with, and now you have to actually get them to do things. Yeah, and that that's one really fucking difficult. But then there's it's like that on top of the fact. You have people that are resentful, mm-hmm. and they go in and abuse the power. Yeah. So the best thing you could do is not be a shitty person to begin with, and then that person gets promoted, so they don't have to worry about the power trip. Yeah. And yeah. now they all that they have to focus on is trying to get other people to yeah. behave. And then in another kind of perverse way, too, as you'll have those power trip people go in, and now they have a justification for acting that way because they say, they say to themselves – 
it's not that I'm being an asshole. It's that I have to be an asshole in order to get them to oh, do what I need them yeah. to do. And that it's not my fault. It's just the structure of things. It's, it's, it's just the nature. It's only of that this people position. respond to this. Right. It's the, yeah. They way. tell themselves, you know what? I'm not. I'm not being a bad person. I'm being forced to be this way. Yeah. Because they won't listen, and I have to get them to. So. I can see that too, like being in order for like a shakeup. Like you've just got done joshing around with these people, right? And now the old boss has moved up, and you're the guy. And yeah. in the meantime, you've learned that Jenny hates making copies, and Greg doesn't mind. And so you have Greg make copies now, and it all it becomes a more fluid environment. People, mm-hmm. you know what people don't like to do, so you don't make them do that. Yeah. And the old boss didn't because he didn't have that exposure. Yep. And no one's care. gonna be like, yeah, there's total hey, benefits boss. to it. Yeah. But on the flip side, you could also, you know, if something happens, you could use that to be spiteful. Like if Jenny pisses you off, you could be like, all right, well, guess who's making copies today? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, all of that, all of these things are true. Yeah. It's, leadership is unbelievably complicated, and there's literature on this too that that. Bosses are more stressed out by their employees than employees are by their boss. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. I mean, an employee only really has to worry about the one person, but the boss has to worry about the 20, you know? So automatically it makes more sense. Like, yeah. they got 20 people's problems. And then they got to deal just, with yeah. whatever else they're dealing with, too. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, like, the... The quote that's always obsessed me, and you're going to laugh at me, Joe, but Spider-Man. The, the With great power comes great responsibility, and you can kind of just sp- splice all of that away and just c- do power and responsibility. It's really what it comes down to, is because you don't even need to have great power to be responsible. Because like, you, if you just kind of understand that when you have any ounce of power in whatever domain, you are responsible for how that how that comes off and it's your job to figure out to do that in whatever way you see fit. Right. And conversely to that. So the flip side of that coin is like, is what I've always thought of it as is that ap- everybody knows that absolute power corrupts absolutely, yes. but incremental power corrupts exponentially. Exponentially. Ooh. I think that just one little, Cause I thought you were going to go incrementally there. It's not, <laughs> it's not a one for one ratio. Yeah. It's, you get one piece of power and you're corrupted two pieces. I mean, if we want to pull it back again, Hitler's example. He starts cleaning things up, small scale, and then just, woo! It just explodes. (laughs) That's where the responsibility comes in. Yeah. Because that's a potential, you have all the more responsibility to not act that way. Yes. And these are all things that came to my mind as a result of my time in and not knowing them when it happened. I wish that somebody would have taught all of this in the Marine Corps before Mm -hmm. you become... Before you get that thing, like corporal's corporal's course. Here, like here's a, here's some things that are going to happen to you psychologically. Like, listen, here's <laughs> I think that anyone in those types of authority positions, cops, military, mm-hmm. should be sat down and taught the Stanford Prison Experiment, and read um, what's the name of the book? Um, the Lucifer Effect Ooh. by Zimbardo, mm-hmm. the guy who did this. Oh, Philip Zimbardo. Oh. Yeah, there's a couple podcasts if you guys are interested uh, with Philip Zimbardo. Fantastic stuff. Cool. He, no, he even talks about how he got sucked into it. Yeah, he did. He's he's very open about it because he's like, nowadays, you could never do an experiment like that. He's like, the fact that we got away with it, he's like, I feel a little weird about it. Because <laughs> like he, he, it's a morally gray experiment to some degree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he let it continue yeah. as it got worse and worse. They knew because they, they said within like 24 to 40 hours, they knew they couldn't really, they shouldn't really keep going. It took his girlfriend at the time to sit in to who came in and saw what was happening was outside the situation, and she told him, like, 
if this is the kind of person you are that you would let this continue, I don't want to be with you anymore. Whoa. This is wrong. Whoa. And that's when he woke up and he went, oh, fuck. Like, he was like, I've been sucked to do it too. And then that's when he ended the experiment. Damn. So See, you need, I think you need to, yeah. you need to give people that warning before they have, before they're in that position of authority and power <sighs> so that they know that they can be corrupted by it. Yeah. So that, when they start to be corrupted, they can go, oh, I see what's happening. I'm not going to get caught in that current. Yeah. I think, too, this just makes me appreciate teachers even more. Yeah. You know, like, not only are – you're not worrying about – you're not overseeing a floor of salesmen or IT people hoping that the company's intranet doesn't go down or that the sales are met. You're shaping people. Like, you have, you know, like, help behind – well, I feel like nowadays the way whatever system is set up, I, don't, I haven't heard a single teacher – as a proponent for the current like mathematic testing and everything seems like it's completely ridiculous now but we've sunk too much money in this so mm -hmm. it's just gonna have to play out um as far yeah, as i can tell a, but that's a slippery slope <laughs> but you're, you're shaping humans for like their future life yeah. in the western world and that's a lot like I, I had one of my friends nicole let me come in and teach the kids not really teach but like i did a, like a little pop-up book lesson with them Mm -hmm. And I was, like, petrified. I wore a black shirt because I knew I was going to sweat, but, like, I sweat through that shirt completely. I'm a sweaty dude, but, like, this mm -hmm. was, like, a lot. Hold, hold and, on like, level. all these, these kids were, like, six or seven years old. And I talked to a few friends about, like, a lesson plan and stuff, and they were, like, these, these, they can't even, like, use scissors. They're okay. not going to know what to do. And so I was, like, oh, that's cool. All right. I get to play around with this. And I kind of, like, froze in quite a few scenarios. Like, one little girl was, like, I was like, hey, we're going to write on the white side of the card. I use note cards, and we're going to write on the white side, not the stripe side. And then she wrote all of her stuff on the stripe side. And I was like, okay, cool. That's awesome practice. Why don't we just, you know, do that again on the other side on the white side? That was awesome practice. Let's go do it again. And then she retraced everything she had done on the stripe side again. And I was like, and I, I don't know what to do, so I just walked away. I was like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and watching my friend just kind of, like, actually teach the lesson while I was like an awkward yeah. teacher's assistant in the yeah. background sweating. Um, watching how she handled those kids and like the recognition of personality and delegation and just little things. I was like, damn. And like, I literally went into that cause I was like, I want to be a better leader and stuff. And like seeing how those things played out and how well she recognized personality and like all the little things. And like, I, I was so impressed and like, that's, I don't know if it's hard or worse or not to demean people in elementary who sit with the children for the entire time. But like, I mean, imagine too with like, teachers who have periods and have hundreds of kids at their disposal and are constantly having to do that and recognize personalities and strengths and weaknesses and work with them on top of being a therapist and whatever else and like really housing that child and being the third parent or second parent and stuff and I don't know that was like a really really cool experience to see yeah. leadership play out but yeah. it's yeah it's a daunting task mm -hmm. seriously and it's it's no wonder that there I can I can only think of maybe a couple teachers I've ever had that have really stood out and that's not a surprise to me that that's the case because it's such a hard thing it's almost a miracle that anyone <laughs> at it at all yeah <laughs> you know it's like i'm not shocked that the, the, the profound life-changing teachers are so few and far between mm -hmm. what makes it all more um rewarding when it happens yeah you know it makes it really worthwhile well this is a great conversation I feel like we cover, as always, whenever you're around, Joe, we go deep into psychology, meaning, and, yeah, yeah. and science of how <laughs> to thing, man. how to put your shit together. It's really, <laughs> it's really cool, because 
I'm writing my thesis is going to be on. Um, basically it's like how, be a little teaser for next time you're back. I can you, talk more about it. But yeah, it's, it's a, how veterans use language oh. after trauma and how different types of language mm -hmm. um, indicate different means of thinking or how they're thinking about things. And I fell into the meaning literature as a result because in order to understand how they were thinking, I need to know basically how meaning works. So it's really cool that I get to talk about this, and I'm, it's really my thing. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm I like cool. it. I mean, it's it's honestly like my my side obsession is kind of figuring out, you know, how to put myself together, <laughs> and then just taking all the things that I've gotten value from and just being really, really articulate about the process, and then using that as a framework to push it out in the world and be like, here are the things that I've figured, like help myself figure out. And it's not going to look the same for you, but here's the, you know, the foundational things that you can do to have a higher quality life period. Right. Hmm. Cause that just has a ripple effect in how you orient your entire, the rest of your life. Yeah. It's all cool. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. And as always, thanks for joining us guys. Nick Bugle. Thank you for having me. You're as always Bye. never, Never disappoint. <laughs>